HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I thanks to my sponsors, White Oak Pastures. Um, folks, this is the end of my first season for Straight No Chaser. I started this program uh, not quite a year ago, but in September, and uh, I'm taking a short break over the month of August. I'll be back in September with more on politics, policy, and the professionals that run our food systems. So uh, over the last year, I've really roamed over a lot of terrain uh, in developing this program, um, just kind of feeling my way along. I've, I've worked uh, a lot. I've done a lot of reading in the realm of food, politics, and technology. And there were a few topics that surfaced regularly, and among them were urban agriculture and the strides forward into the mainstream that it has made, um, the farm bill and its ramifications for what and how we eat, may not be everybody's favorite topic, but it's one that really interested me, and it's one that has an enormous impact on all of us, uh, on our health, on the environment, and the economy, and of course, on the cattle industry. (laughs) Um, But it also, (laughs) one of my favorite topics is the cattle industry, so I've included that in this little roundup of favorite clips, or at least clips that kind of show what what I try to do on this show on a regular basis. Um, But I've also covered things like hydrofracking. I started uh, looking into that about three years ago before it became mainstream. Um, I've also looked into new and sometimes scary innovations in food production and packaging like nanotechnology, something that I'm going to continue to follow as it continues to grow in the realm of food innovation. Um, Nanotechnology is going to be used a lot in packaging. It's already used a lot in cosmetics, um, and it has uh, both uh, good things and bad things about it. In in terms of food packaging, it's it's really successful at, um, or they hope to make it really successful, in um, retarding spoilage and in identifying when food is spoiling so you'll be able to tell from a package whether or not something is um, in good shape or not. Um, 
What else? Well, hunger and nutrition. I talk about that a lot. School food. Um, agricultural gag laws, uh, a trend that is continuing to grow in states across the country. Um, gag laws, what that means is that people who um, go in undercover or maybe run a video stream undercover, uh, those people can now be prosecuted in a federal court of law for a felony. This is a, not a great development in our legislature. Um, aquaculture and the condition of our oceans, as well as um, I've had quite a few conversations with public health advocates, uh, lawyers like Bill Marler and Michelle Simon. Um, those have all been included in my Sunday broadcasts. I also love to read, and because I'm on a list with lots of different publishers, I get um, copies of books that are just coming out, and I've been lucky enough to interview at least a half a dozen or more authors on subjects that range from food safety to calorie counting and nutrition. That would be my, my friend and colleague, uh, Marian Nessel, who's always a great source of information. Um, Olive Oil, Tom Muller's book was great. Uh, Water, The Ripple Effect by Alex Prudhomme. He was another guest. And easily the most thought-provoking and interesting of all uh, my authors, I think, perhaps was Tim Pacharat, who wrote a fantastic expose on the inner workings of high, a high-volume cattle processing plant. Um, that was a real eye-opener, that one. Um, but here are some of my favorite moments on urban agriculture. Um, I, I, heard, I read an op-ed in the New York Times about three years or so ago, written by Dr. Dixon de Pommier, the pro a professor emeritus from Columbia University. Um, and he uh, had published this op-ed on a concept he and his students had come up with called vertical farming, an idea of growing fruits and vegetables in glass towers in or near cities. I was so intrigued by this idea that I invited him on the show, and I, I, I asked uh, Jen Nelkin, who is the chief horticulturist for what at the time was the largest rooftop hydroponic garden called Gotham Greens, which is now up and running, and, um, and at that time it was also the largest of its type. I think it has since been eclipsed, as you may well hear uh, later on in this program. So three years later, uh, there has been an absolutely exponential explosion of rooftop agriculture, urban farming, and of course, the corollary emphasis on local products and sustainable agriculture, etc. Um, but I was curious to see what had happened with vertical farming, which kind of disappeared off the radar uh, in the wake of all of the new farms that opened up that were more conventional. And I asked Dr. De Pommier to return to the program um, because I thought his concept was in many ways the most ambitious and complex, the hardest to achieve, and yet if there were enough venture capital out there, it could really provide a miraculous solution to feeding cities efficiently in the future, particularly if anyone has ever read uh, Jim Cull uh, James Kunstler's book, uh, Peak Oil. You'll see why that could be um, the future. Anyway, in this clip, I ask him to explain what exactly a vertical farm is. What is a vertical farm then? We, our class, which included 106 different students at, 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 for the entire length of the project, which lasted about 10 years, uh, it's simply stacking high-tech greenhouses on top of each other and integrating the systems. What systems? Electrical, uh, nutrition deliveries, information management in terms of when to harvest, what to plant. You know, it's the same uh, problems that Jen Nelkin has with her Gotham Greens uh, greenhouses, except now it's on a multiple-story level. Right. And that, that's an engineering problem. Sorry, that's all it is. So 
So you can see that uh, vertical farming is really not such a complex idea, although uh, so far relatively few people have been interested in investing in it. But according to Dr. De Pommier in his uh, in his last visit with me, there are there are countries uh, Holland, Sweden, Singapore who are all starting to really invest in this technology, and we even have some vertical farms here in uh, the United States. There's one in Chicago that has been built into an abandoned meatpacking plant. Um, it's not quite uh, sort of on the level of the glass tower, but it's still a start, and I think it's going to be I, you know, a real wave in the future. But another one of my favorite guests on urban farming um, was the author Jennifer Cockrell King, a Canadian writer who toured quite a few countries, the United States, England, Cuba, um, France, uh, to learn about how urban farming has integrated into their cultures for her book, Food and the City. It turns out, uh, as I learned in her book, that um, urban farming is hardly a new idea. In fact, it's been around for centuries. But as Jennifer pointed out, um, certain conditions really seem to bring it back to the cultural fore. And in this clip, you'll hear why that is. This is, a, this is one of the paradoxes of, uh, of cities is when times are tough, uh, we grow a lot more food in cities. So uh, going back to, you know, even the the early 1900s, we had relief gardens, we had vacant lot gardening programs. Certainly in New York, there were, there were thousands of vacant lot gardens, which were basically food gardens, community gardens that people could rent or just, uh, if they didn't have the dollar that it cost to rent them, they could just apply to grow food on a, a city plot that the city would administer. Hmm. And that happened during the Depression as well. And then in the Second World War, it was kind of rebranded as victory gardening. Right. Um, and in the U.S., uh, about 40% of the domestic vegetable production was on these home-based, small-scale, mostly urban gardens um, called victory gardens. So, uh, you know, again, we, we haven't invented urban agriculture. We've, we've just rediscovered it. But uh, it just goes to show that... W- you know, we used to produce a lot of food in cities, and so we're just rediscovering those. But as, as land prices go up, um, you know, vegetables are low, low on the totem pole. So <laughs> yeah. we tend to give up land for higher uh, return commercial investments. And, and farming and growing food is a subsistence thing by and large, so it doesn't provide a huge tax base for, for uh, city councillors. Another thing that Jennifer told me uh, during the course of that uh, particular interview, which I thought was really interesting and really stuck with me as a statistic, is that um, the way supermarkets operate, uh, we're basically nine meals away from chaos. In other words, supermarkets only stock about three days worth of uh, groceries, meats, vegetables and dairy, um, you know, at a time so that they have constant deliveries and because the of spoilage, they want that stuff to turn over fast. So um, the, the idea that we would uh, transition from um, a broad line distribution system where fruits and vegetables are coming from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away into a system where they're only a few miles away or, or even right in the cities would be a major change in our food system and one which I think we should um, definitely adopt in the future. Um, but what has also been very, very exciting and inspiring to me is the fact that urban farming has become a viable industry. It's not just a nonprofit experiment of, you know, long-haired hip 
hippies uh, embracing the counterculture. It's really something that is, I think, here to stay. And the Brooklyn Grange, who the founders of which have been on this show multiple times, they were a real pioneer in the for-profit sector of urban gardening and one of the first and most visible models for urban ag in the New York City area. In this clip, uh, Chase Emmons, the business manager, and one of the Grange founders, Ben Flanner, describe their next steps in the development of the Brooklyn Grange and basically their plot to take over rooftops in the New York City area. Check it out. You know, it, one of the things is, is as Ben will say, it, it, we're we're always being creative. We always have our eyes open for new potential revenue streams because this is such an this is such new territory. I, we, we're you know we're, we're pioneers. There isn't really a benchmark to gauge it against. It's not like okay, you have to go do this or look at this market and 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 be efficient in this market. It's really there's no model to follow. Uh, so one of the biggest things, at least that that I have in my head, is scoping new roofs and new revenue streams. Actually, new revenue sources in order to finance building those roofs because we plan on building hopefully another big roof every year for the next few years. Now, last year, I think Ben, you told me you uh, raised something like fifteen thousand pounds of product. Was that right? Indeed. And so when you more than double your thing, you'll have like 30, maybe close to 40,000 pounds. Yeah, maybe mid-30s. And so where where are you? You're selling this all through CSAs and into restaurants, or are you going to start being able to produce enough product to get into supermarkets? What's the goal there? Um, farmers markets, restaurants, mm-hmm. CSAs, and then also some you know potentially retail deliveries. Especially we'll start out with some of the smaller retailers, around, um, particularly around Brooklyn and Queens. But taking urban farming onto the next level is a company called Bright Farms, um, which had another name before, which I can't remember. And they they were actually consultants with Jen Nelkin on Gotham Greens because they are a hydroponic operation. Bright Farms is a company that will install and cultivate hydroponic farms specifically for grocery stores and grocery store chains, which will obviously shorten the space between uh, gro- where it grows and where it's uh, sold. And, um, and that's going to be key in terms of guaranteeing freshness and long life for uh, produce, especially. They just signed, what got me interested in them is that I read an article about uh, how they had just signed a deal with the AMP supermarkets, and that's a chain that includes Pathmark, Walgreens, and excuse me, and food emporiums uh, for whom in the next year they will grow and sell over a million pounds of produce from their hydroponic farm in Brooklyn. They have another facility that they're working on in Sunset Park in Queens. But clearly, um, this is the wave of the future. I mean, it was really uh, a very inspiring conversation and, um, and they're hoping to fill a very specific niche. So here is Paul Lightfoot, the CEO of Bright Farms, describing the niche that they will expect to fill in the coming years. Let's, let's go right at that. I think that's a great topic. And in most supermarkets across the country, local is a hugely successful strategy in the marketing departments, but isn't really getting any traction in the produce departments. You know, it's, it's, it turns out it's very hard for large supermarket chains to meet this growing and huge and important demand for local because they're just systemically not set up to do it. And often, you know, they don't feel great about local growers who don't produce year-round. They don't produce at the same sort of quality specifications and, and, and usually not at enough volumes. What we're doing is giving a supermarket chain like A&T or like SuperValue a chance to meet meet the, the demand for local that they're otherwise not able to. But let's let's talk about A and P. Uh, I feel I feel fabulous about our partnership with A and P. Mm-hmm. And I wanna I wanna 
I want to sort of give a foundation for that for that by saying that we're not we're not trying to like win over the market of of wealthy people who can afford niche and expensive produce. We want it and, and by the way, that market's doing fine, right? You know, I can I can drive to Stone Barns and, and you know and buy expensive produce anytime I want and, and I can feel great about it, which is fabulous. We want to make make a difference in the mainstream produce market. We want to go to where America is buying the produce. And in this region, A and T does a great job of that. It's got, you know, hundreds of stores in the in the in the region surrounding New York City. It's where it's where the regular people do their shopping, and, yeah. and we're you know, we're proud to be trying to change with a, with a great partner like that who's got some vision the way that you know the mainstream population here eats, and and that mainstream population gets by the way that they want local food as well, and they want to know where their food is coming from. Yeah, that's quite a that is quite an ambitious scheme that uh, that Bright Farms has, and and uh, imagine going into a local A and P or food, you know, or or Pathmark or something like that in the burbs where farmers markets are not so readily accessible, and finding that you have some incredibly fresh um, produce. It may not be heirloom vegetables. It may not be you know anything particularly spectacularly special. They're mostly growing tomatoes, herbs, and. Um, uh, lettuces right now, but they're going to expand to berries and and other sort of uh, you know fruits like that that can be easily grown in a hydroponic situation. And I think that's to be lauded. I'm very excited about um, continuing a relationship with Bright Farms and and going to visit the farm and seeing what they're doing and hopefully producing a documentary in the coming uh, year about all of the urban ag that's going on around New York. But anyway, to go on because I'm already running out of time here. Um, the other one of the other topics that came up again and again for me was the farm bill and I know the farm bill is not something that people tend to think about a lot or um, feel has a lot of impact on their lives but actually it does it's enormously important it's one of the biggest government entitlements um, in all of our tax base in other words we pay an enormous amount of money in the billions and billions of dollars for the farm bill and I think most people think that the farm bill um, is is largely composed of subsidies to corn farmers, but actually that's a very small fraction of what happens. And indeed, many of those subsidies have been cut in this current version that's about to be uh, debated in Congress. Um, But in any case, uh, so that bill has not yet been signed, although the Senate Senate version of it has been um, produced. The House is still preparing theirs. But I've interviewed lots of people from those groups, and they've done their best to study this miserable and unwieldy document, numbering in the thousands of pages, um, trying their best to separate the special interests from the true imperatives and uh, helping legislators craft a bill that answers to many masters. Um, So one thing that people should realize is that the biggest allocation in the farm bill is um, SNAP or food stamp benefits. Um, And here is Anthony Butler of St. John's Bread and Life, an emergency food provider in the Bed-Stuy area of Brooklyn, talking about the impact of benefit reductions if even the most benign version of this bill is signed. What's happening right now in the uh, SNAP benefits, SNAPs are actually food stamp. It's the... um a supplemental uh, nutritional something something supplemental nutrition assistance program. Assistance program. Thank you. <laughs> um, the the uh, bill that just went was approved by the Senate and went to the House. Right. Is proposing over ten years to cut four point five billion dollars in SNAP money. 
Uh-huh. Um, what that will do over ten years, over ten years, four point five billion dollars. Um, what that will do is, particularly in New York City, forty percent of those uh, who are hungry in New York City will be affected by that. Uh-huh. It's about. Um, something like around 800,000 uh, families who will lose $90 a month for groceries. Um, and when you're only bringing in $230, $240 of groceries, you lose $90. It's a significant impact. Jiminy, yeah. Um, the biggest people who will be hurt are people who receive other federal subsidies. So the biggest people who will be hurt are working families and seniors who receive, if they receive uh, heating subsidies, if they receive Medicare and, um, which we forget that that's a federal subsidy. Um, yeah. um, they will that will be offset, so they will lose their food stamps because the idea is they're receiving the Medicare money, so it'll be offset by that much. So, in other words, any, those people are only allowed to receive so much. Yeah, essentially, kind of a lump from the government sum. pie. Exactly. Okay. Um, Jeez. There will be what they're going to do is they're they're. Uh, arguing to put $175 million of TFAP money. TFAP money is the money that food pantries receive, mostly kinds of lines of credit to purchase food. Uh-huh. Um, that is over 10 years, but that money's coming from the $4.5 billion. So if you do the math, $4.5 billion um, and only putting $175 million back yeah. in. Somebody's um, making some money here. It's very disproportionate. And people <laughs> need to know that the farm bill, food stamps, food stamps support farmers. Yeah. That's the purpose of it. The purpose of it is that this money goes back into farm. It also, food stamps dramatically supports local economies. So probably one of my favorite guests all year was the Democratic Congresswoman Shelley Pingree from Maine, who sat on the House of Representatives Agricultural Committee, the committee charged with writing the House version of the 2012 Farm Bill. We haven't seen that version yet. And she introduced the Local Food, Farms and Jobs Act, which she hoped would be folded into the Farm Bill. This would subsidize more of what we hope will become part of our new food system. I'll be surprised if her act makes it into the final version, but she's at least making an effort at it. So um, here is Shelley Pingree talking about what she thinks should be happening in Congress vis-a-vis the Farm Bill. Well, there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on in Congress, as I'm sure you're well aware, and uh, we have a mandate to cut uh, the budget deficit, and there are those people who are ready to give up some of the farm subsidies, which it's about time, you yeah. know, giving direct payments to people who just loan own land, aren't necessarily even growing crops on them, or direct payments and subsidies to corn and other crops that are already highly priced. Um, so a complete waste of the taxpayer money. I think people know um, in the ag sector that some of that has to come to the end. The danger is... Um, as we scoop that money out of those programs and fight the fight to discontinue them, we don't want them all to just go into the black hole of the budget deficit. We want some of them to be re-resourced into those things that will help uh, a new, you know, modern agricultural movement that fits what people, consumers, and farmers and communities want today. So we got a real fight going on both um, to take those agricultural subsidies out of places we don't need them, which you can imagine um, the big commodity producers don't want to give up in the first place. Yes. And then the second fight is to direct them to those places where we can really enhance um, a healthy food movement in our country. Mm-hmm. 
If only all of our Congress people were uh, of the same mind as Shelley Pingree, understanding some of those connections uh, that are so important between um, a healthy nation and a healthy economy. Anyway, um, I'm going to rush along here because I'm already running out of time. Um, but the other thing that I talked about a lot and love to talk about and love to know more about is the uh, is basically the protein industry, the cattle industry in particular. So the industrialized food system... Um, really has become analogous in this generation to what in my generation was the Vietnam War. It's an older culture uh, that is faced with a countercultural movement of younger people demanding, and in this case, creating their own food systems. That's why DIY butchering, beekeeping, gardening have all sprung from the interest in uh, local foods and healthier foods, and really a desire to change the status quo. So um, the industry that has taken the very biggest bruising from these new attitudes is the cattle industry, which became the poster child for the evil empire of animal cruelty and unsustainable environmental costs and foodborne illnesses. And there can be no doubt that the industry has deserved much of the calumny that they have garnered. But in many ways, let's face it, Americans have gotten the system that they wanted, which was <laughs> one that provided impossibly cheap meat and lots of it. So since the protein providers have created such a miracle of efficiencies and are so successful and who contribute so much to our gross domestic product, I make a point of inviting industry experts onto the show to talk about um, the business from the inside. In the next clip, you're going to hear part of a conversation with Raul Baxter, who was really interesting, a 30-plus year veteran of the cattle industry, a consultant now. And you can see how skillful he is in shifting the blame for some of the industry's public relations problems from the processors to farms. And also how angry he feels about the Humane Society undercover videos and other whistleblowers who he feels have acted unfairly in exposing practices that have subsequently inflamed consumers and really turned them against the industry. Have a listen to this. Raul Baxter. I, you know, number one, it's uh, it's extremely difficult. I, uh, again, as you look at all of the... Uh the programs that go on, the, the the different groups from the USA, FSIS. I mean, it seems like you're having a government convention <laughs> in each plant, in each plant every day. And so the question becomes, you know, how much information do you need to make a decision? And a lot of these things that involve recalls, you know, happen after the fact, and uh, very very yeah. difficult to be able to control that kind of thing. Plus, you know, most of the publicity about uh, the that have involved. Uh, animals have, have come from the farm level, and uh, you know I think that is where some of these things have really, really gotten out of control. Because uh, to me, when when people are using these types of films to get people fired, to get people removed from their jobs, to get criminal penalties, they need to go under the same pressure that everybody else does that creates a charge against somebody. They need to be under the gun. They need to be cross-examined. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I feel very strongly about that type of thing. Yeah, not surprising that he didn't like those HSUS videos showing downer cattle and whatnot. I mean, the number of recalls in the meat industry over the last few years has uh, escalated quite dramatically. On the other hand, you could say that that's because their interventions uh, in identifying pathogens and finding and tracing back uh, foodborne illness has escalated. And thus, uh, we have a safer food system. I don't know which 
answer is correct here, but um, I do think it's great that there's more scrutiny of the industry. And um, I invited Raul Baxter onto the show just to talk about transparency in the industry. And I feel that they really have a lot, a lot of ground to cover to get to the point where they are as transparent as they really should and um, by rights should be. So um, the flip side of that conversation, however, was with my um, interview with Timothy Pacharat, an author who wrote a book called Every 12 Seconds, Industrialized Slaughter and the Politics of Sight. Tim is a professor at the New School, and he spent nine months working in a very large cattle processing plant in Nebraska. Uh, it was a plant, by the way, whose animal handling facilities were designed by Temple Grandin, and it was a great shock to her system, and she was really upset to read this book, actually, because... Um, the 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 speed at which animals have to be processed uh thanks to the imperative of the bottom line is one that circumvents virtually every uh, control that we have in terms of humane practices towards animal as well as as um, food safety in any case um, his uh, insights into how we separate ourselves as a nation um, from that which is unpleasant or uncomfortable, and you could extrapolate this to the prison system or any number of other industries, um, made sense on many levels to me, but none, of course, more obviously than in the meat industry, where workers are segregated from what they are doing to the point where they don't even really um, understand or kind of internalize the actual reality of their grisly work, which in the case of the meat industry, is killing and cutting up animals. So in this clip, Tim offers a fascinating anecdote that perfectly illustrates this point. Uh, the work of killing is something that I wanted to understand. Uh, how is it, what does it mean from the perspective of lived experience to carry out the, the killing of animals on a routinized, industrialized uh, basis? One of the stories that the book opens with uh, is about a cow that escaped uh, from a slaughterhouse up the street from the one that I was working in. Uh, and yeah, this that was cow, really, that was so painful. This cow, you know, ran down uh, one of the main boulevards in Omaha and took a turn, uh, which led it to be cornered sort of against the chain link fence that bordered the slaughterhouse that I was working in. And this cow was uh, being pursued by the Omaha Police Department. And um, it so happened that uh, all of this took place during the 10-minute afternoon break for the slaughterhouse uh, that I was working in. So a lot of the workers were outside uh, and witnessed the police open fire on the animal with shotguns, right, and sort of uh, killed it. Uh, and, and the next day in the lunchroom, the conversation around the killing of this cow was filled with sort of vituperative disgust and horror uh, at, the, at the actual killing of this animal, right? And what happens is uh, the lunch bell rings to signal the end of lunch, and we all get up and go back uh, to our jobs where we are contributing to the killing of 2,500 of these animals per day. Um, so yes, I do believe that there is something significant to the act of taking life and, and the ways in which that work is structured and organized to allow even the people who participate in it to be distanced from it uh, to, to disassociate from what they're doing is very much one of the central themes of the book. No question about that. And I actually um, disagree with you that those who uh, consume meat in general should be shielded from seeing uh, what happens in the slaughterhouse. Um, I think that uh, one of the real questions of the book is what happens uh, to the way we think about these practices if we begin to collapse some of the distances that shield us from having to confront um, the realities that they demand.
That was Timothy Pacharat, the author of Every 12 Seconds, <clears throat> Industrialized Slaughter and the Politics of Sight. I can't uh, stress enough what a great book that was. It was really, really thought-provoking. Um, anyway... That's it for the clips here. And in the coming season, I'm just about out of time. In fact, I am out of time. So I'm just going to quickly run through this. Uh, I do want to revisit a lot of these topics. But this uh, this coming season, one thing that I, I know I'm going to focus on a lot is the use of antibiotics in our food system, which is one of the greatest public health uh, dangers that I see uh, facing us. We simply do not have um, enough antibiotics or enough new research in the pipeline to keep up with what the livestock industry is doing in terms of uh, creating superbugs through their routine administration of antibiotics. So that's that's something you're going to hear a lot about in the next uh, year, uh, come September when I'm back. Um, and one of my recent guests, Jean Halloran, who, was the, who is the executive director of food initiatives from Consumers Union, the entity that publishes consumer reports, will be coming back on a fairly regular business to talk about not just antibiotics, but also GMO foods, uh, crops, you know, the corn, the alfalfa, etc., the impact that that's having on agriculture, as well as um, I'm hoping to have a really interesting discussion with her about um, genetically modified salmon, which is the first sort of live animal GMO crop, as it were, uh, that's going to be coming down the pipeline. And of course, I'll continue to have lots of scientists, lots of activists, um, from all kinds of, of different um, organizations, uh, such as Food and Water Watch, the Government Accountability Office, uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, and so on. But I also want to get in people from the FDA, um, from the USDA, other government officials, and um, people from, from inside the industries, so that they can give their side of it. Because I think it's really important that we understand where they're coming from. They all think, you know, people in the industry think that they're doing what we want. And uh, by and large, they have been doing what we want. And now it's up to us to tell them um, that this is not the path we want to go on and that we want something better and we want something healthier and we want something that tastes good and also doesn't cost a fortune. So um, one last thing, I, I would love to hear from any of my listeners about any topics that they feel are important. I want them to, you know, look at me as a resource. Uh, I'm, I love to do research. I love reading about stuff. Um, so if there's any scientific or innovative new aspect of the food industry that you want to hear explored or hear some experts on, by all means, get in touch with me through uh, info at heritageradionetwork.org. And in case you just can't imagine a Sunday without Straight No Chaser, and I hope you can't, I've picked a quartet of memorable shows to rerun during August. I want to thank all of you so much for listening, for tuning in on a regular basis, um, for comments, for call-ins. It's been great, and I hope to keep this up uh, for as long as it takes to make things change. Stay cool, folks. I'll see you in September. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. For listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.